Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 7. We've got a pretty large section this morning. We're going to cover it kind of in three parts. And um, I don't know if you've ever had one of, these, one of these days or weeks even when it seems like nothing goes according to plan. And, and maybe uh, you notice as each day goes on, things get worse and worse, maybe an unexpected uh, sort of bombshell of news or, or a tragedy strikes or something happens. You think, how is this even possible? Like this is, this is the worst week ever. Well, as we continue our series in John's Gospel, of course, we're looking at the person and work of Jesus, uh, Jesus being uh, the most controversial, the most polarizing, the most important person to ever live. And when we get to this part in Jesus' ministry, as recorded in, in John sh- chapter 7, Jesus is having one of those weeks. Actually, it's been a few months, really. Just a, a horrible uh, series of events. Uh, we saw last week he was just ambushed by a group of people who want to fight him after a sermon. Uh, then, uh, that, uh, after that, he subsequently lost 99.8% of his followers. He went from uh, some five to 7,000 down to 12, really 11. So you can, in your spare time, do the math on that, but I, it's, it's almost 99.9% of his followers are gone now. Uh, and then, after that, he, he gets wind of the fact that, that there's some very powerful people who want him dead. And then finally, as we'll see in just a minute, he's confronted with the reality that not even his own family, not even his own brothers actually believe in him. They think he's crazy. John chapter 7, let me start by reading verses 1 through 9. The word of God reads this way. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the work you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus has been in Galilee for six months. It's been six months since the healing of the 5,000, six months since he walked on water. And he went about, John tells us, in Galilee, which means that he was busy circulating, doing very human things. He was eating and drinking. He was, he was hanging out with people. He was doing ministry. And then it time comes, fall comes, which is time for the Feast of Booze. Now, there were three feasts that were basically obligatory for all Jewish males that were celebrated by Israel as a way to remind the people of Israel of God's faithfulness throughout the years, particularly God's faithfulness in delivering them from captivity uh, to the Egyptians. And those three feasts were the first one took place in, in the spring, and this was the, uh, the Passover, which was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, that was, that was what we would know as late April, right about the time that we celebrate Easter. Uh, the second was called the Pentecost, and that took place in the summer. Uh, that was also called the Festival of Weeks. Um, and the third feast, which by some estimation was the most joyful, was called the Festival of Booths, which was also uh, called, to, called the Feast of Tabernacles. In, in the word the Hebrew, it was the Sukkoth. It was the chance for the people of Israel to, remind, to be reminded of the way that God had delivered them when they were on the move, so to speak, in the wilderness. And that was celebrated in the fall. And so, again, they, this was something that 
an entire nation did as a way to reflect on, celebrate with much joy God's faithfulness. And so people are moving uh, to Jerusalem. Now, let me show you kind of what this looks like. Jesus is up in Galilee, which is in the upper region. You can see by the star uh, where that is. Um, Now, Galilee is a region that contains Capernaum. We've heard that it was in Capernaum. Galilee is a larger region in which Capernaum uh, lies. And then the southern region, you go down to Judea, where you see uh, in just a moment a lower star, and that's where Jerusalem was. And you could get from, you could get from Galilee or from, from Capernaum to Jerusalem. is about a three-day's uh, walk, three-and-a-half-day walk, unless you wanted to avoid uh, Samaria. Samaria was a place where there was much political and racial uh, tension uh, with the Jews. And so if you wanted to walk around Samaria, you added another two and a half days. So this was, it was no joke to get there. It was a, it was a major journey. And the reason that Jesus determines not to go is not because of the, the length of the journey or because of uh, just how arduous it would be. He knows that there are Jews there who are looking to kill him. They're looking for him because they want him dead. So he decides not to go right away. But his brothers say to him, look, you've got to go to Judea so that people can see the miracles that you're doing. No one who wants to be a celebrity teacher does his work in secret. John tells us that his brothers didn't believe him. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that his own family uh, thought he was crazy. Now, there are a lot of different opinions as to what the brothers' collective tone was here. Were they, were they mocking Jesus? They could have been. Uh, were they sympathetic to Jesus? That is, recognizing that everyone had abandoned him. Maybe they felt sorry for Jesus. I think when they say this, they're actually being sincere, but the problem is they, they misunderstood Jesus' motives. They realized that this festival was the biggest, uh, again, most joyful celebration of the year, the perfect time for Jesus to kind of rebuild his fan base. And so what they're thinking is, look, Jesus, if I were you, I would go to the, people, I would go to the place with the biggest crowd, and I would do the, uh, perform the biggest spectacle, because if you do that, then people may follow you. You can rebuild that fan base that you've lost. Don't waste your time in that armpit that is Galilee. Go down to Jerusalem where all the important people are, all the movers and shakers, all the decision makers, and there you can have a greater impact. Now, from a marketing standpoint, it makes sense, doesn't it? You go to where everyone is. It's like, it's like buying an ad in the Super Bowl. You want, you want maximum exposure here. But the problem is Jesus' brothers completely miss out on what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to build the biggest ministry ever. He's not even trying to make a name for himself. What he's come to do, he's come to the earth to be beaten and to die so that all those who trust in him could be given life. Jesus came to accomplish his Father's will, to gather all those whom the Father had given him through a message of good news in an evil world. Yes, it means pointing out that the world's way is evil. The world is separated from God. We enter this this world apart from God. And so that was part of it. It was proclaiming a a message of good news in an evil world. This is why Jesus said to his brothers that his time had not come. Jesus' brothers and the people who surrounded them lived by the motto that we embrace. Carpe diem, seize the day. Now is the time to make something of yourself. Now is the time for advancement. Now is the time to take advantage of all the opportunities in front of you. Why sit back when there's more of the world to conquer? Jesus' brothers were thinking in terms of 
of Jesus getting ahead. Jesus making a name for himself, worldly success. But Jesus measures success by a different metric. Uh, One New Testament scholar, Frederick Bruner, writes, The world disdains those losers who contest its successist, get-ahead ways. As a consequence, Jesus was not a winner in his time. And the church that is faithful to him cannot often be a winner either unless she wants to win the world at the price of her own soul. Now think about, think about those values that the world cherishes most. What would you say? Independence is one, certainly. We, we really respect and admire those people who are independent. You know, uh, NBA legend Allen Iverson has the tattoo, uh, On My Own. And that's something that resonates with us. Uh, Self-reliance is another one of those virtues that we think uh, really can can get behind and respect somebody who's self-reliant. We even have a name for these type of people. They're self-made. She's a self-made success. He's a self-made millionaire. So we we respect people who are self-reliant. Revenge is one of the the virtues that the world absolutely cherishes. In fact, I, I noticed maybe this was four years ago. Uh, There were four TV shows on, and I'm no expert on TV culture, but I I did know there were four TV shows on that all, the whole premise was revenge. Like one was even called revenge. And there's such a cherished notion that if if you harm me, I'm going to harm you. I'm going to get you back, whatever it takes. Think about another cherished virtue, virtue, fame. There are people now who are famous. They haven't done anything. They haven't done anything. They're famous for being famous. And and, and there's nothing particularly noble about them. There's nothing particularly uh, amazing about them. But we cherish fame. Upward mobility is another virtue. Have you ever known someone who uh, passed down promotion after promotion after promotion? How do do we regard those people? Say, what's wrong with this person? Like, what? The opportunities are there. Why, why aren't they taking advantage of this? I found myself doing this this very week. I'm driving along with my wife, and I was thinking about someone that has passed down multiple promotions. And I said, I just don't, I don't get it. Like, what, what's wrong? Why, why won't this person accept? My wife and I, I wouldn't call it a rebuke, but in a loving way, reminded me, look, this is not the way it works in God's economy. It's not about upward mobility. Now, God is not against promotions But all these virtues that I mentioned are actually condemned by Jesus. Self-reliance, revenge, fame, upward mobility, independence. The way of Jesus, along with the way of Jesus' followers, is a way of lowliness, not self-promotion. It's a way of sacrifice, not platform building. Let me say it a different way, and this is our first point this morning. The Christian life is a downward progression, not an upward one. It is a life of growing dependence, not blossoming independence. I've often made the point, uh, both in, in print and writing stuff, but also verbally, that, uh, that living strong, in the way that we often think about it, sort of, again, all those virtues that I just described, is not really sort of the, the ethos of the Christian life. The goal of our sanctification is for us actually to become less independent, less self-assured, less autonomous, and instead more aware of our need for God's grace. The call to follow Christ is a call to renounce all self-reliance and actually despair in, despair of any saving trust in our own ability. But I understand this is a, 
This is a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? Because I mean, we live in the age of, of, we live in a Marvel age, right? Marvel comics and superhero movies gross billions of dollars. I remember, you know, as a teenager looking, if a movie would make $100 million, that was a huge feat. Now, billions of dollars, right? And of course, there's nothing wrong with superhero movies. There's nothing wrong with going to be the first one in line to see the next superhero movie. But the thing is, Everybody wants to be a superhero. Nobody wants to be the one being rescued. No one wants to be the one who has to be saved by someone else. There's certainly nothing wrong, again, with cheering on a Cape Crusader or watching the Wonder Woman movie or whatever it is, right? If you're a man, you should probably only watch it once. But there's nothing wrong with watching a superhero movie, anything like that. But the thing is, God has not made us to single-handedly save the world. He doesn't want us in the mirror, flexing our spiritual muscles. He actually wants us on our knees with our stiff necks broken, our callous hearts softened, our haughty spirits smashed so that he can make us truly alive, so that he can give us real joy, real meaning, so that his power would actually be made perfect, be manifest, be made visible in our shortcomings. Longtime theologian J.I. Packer, who's still alive at, I think, 96 uh, years of age, as far as I know, he, he writes this, for Christians, weakness should be a way of life. Weakness is the way for the follower of Christ. Now, it must be said that when I say that, when I, when I talk about depending on God and, and, and resting fully, on, I'm not talking about living a life that's timid. I'm not talking about living a life afraid. I'm not talking about living a life with no confidence or uh, anything like that. To the contrary, those who recognize who God is and who we are in Christ are actually the most courageous people you'll ever meet. I mean, think about in your life, can you think about someone that when you think about boldness and courage and adventure, this person comes to mind? Who are the most courageous people? Who are the most adventurous people? Who are the boldest people? It's those who know they have nothing to lose. It's those who are so secure in Christ's love for them that they know, they actually believe when Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill body, but fear the one who can put body and soul in hell. And they know because they've been made right with Christ, they don't have to fear anything. And so there's a boldness. These are the ones who are going out into unreached people groups. These are the ones who are planting churches in the hardest areas to reach. These are the ones who are starting the conversation about Jesus around people they know are going to be angry. The most courageous, the most adventurous people are the ones who fear nothing, not even death. You've probably heard of the story of Alvin C. York. Sergeant York uh, hails from a little tiny town in Middle Tennessee, actually my own uh, birthplace. And he was one of the most decorated American soldiers of World War I has a fascinating story. It won a Medal of Honor for his heroic acts against German forces. And on October 8, 1918, uh, Sergeant York stormed up a, a hill in France into ongoing machine fire from the Germans. He went with just a handful of others. Most of those folks were killed. There were a few that were, were badly injured. But somehow, in this incredible way, you can look up this story later if you're unfamiliar with him. It's fascinating. With just one single handgun... Sergeant York detained and captured 132 German soldiers marching into the spray of gunfire. Now, was he afraid? Of course he was afraid. 
Did he think that he might lose his life? Of course he felt that way. What would possess someone to march into the enemy that way? Well, it certainly wasn't his confidence in his own ability. Sergeant York, if you, if you read anything of his, uh, about him, or if you've seen any of the, uh, the, the TV or the movies, whatever, he was not the most athletic. Uh, he, he, was not, he doesn't look like a big, strong guy. He's a fairly thin guy. Um, he was kind of, a head, kind of an aw shucks country boy, had that sort of uh, you know, likable demeanor. Certainly no one is going to confuse this guy with Superman, but what was it that sustained him? His biographer provides the answer. He says, Alvin knew Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he was secure in his identity as a Christian. Living strong from a biblical perspective is not about digging deep and making it on our own. It's actually about realizing how hopeless and helpless we are and then resting by faith in Christ so fully, resting so fully in what Jesus has done that we're actually eager to make sacrifices for our neighbor without worrying if they'll reciprocate. We're actually quick to tell others about Jesus without being concerned about how they'll receive us. Willing to forgive others even when they've wronged us without requiring them to be perfect and eager to take great risks in this life without fearing even death. Jesus' brothers totally misunderstood his mission. They said, go down where you can make a name for yourself. That's not why he came. Now look at verses 10 through 13. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, that is Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering among the people about him. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The city is quietly debating who Jesus is. Now, it's not going on publicly. There's too much fear for that to happen. But they're debating under the radar, who is this Jesus? And some said, well, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. But again, there's all this, what John calls muttering below the surface. And I believe that there's actually a great wrestling below the surface for all of us if we'll allow enough time, enough quiet in our day, enough quiet in our souls to actually deal with life's ultimate questions. My grandmother on my dad's side, I uh, always loved visiting her. She was I've told a couple stories about her. My kids, they always love when I talk about her. She's such a, she was such a fiery, feisty woman. Um, but uh, we, would go, we would go spend a couple of days with her. My sister and I would go there. And, and, well, we had a strict rule in my house. We could eat no sugary cereals. And so when I would go see my grandmother, uh, she would insist that not only we get a sugary cereal, that we get the Econo size. So we get these gigantic boxes, you know, we just eat until we were sick. We couldn't eat ice cream except on the weekends. And so... My, my grandmother would get us one of those buckets. You ever seen the buckets, right? And she would just sit us down. We'd each have our own bucket, just get a spoon, just go at it. And uh, she, was an, she was an amazing woman, but when she was, after she was married for 25 years, her husband, my grandfather, left her and uh, abandoned her for uh, one of his assistants, and they ran off and got married. And, and my grandmother was so, she was so uh, hurt and so torn and so vexed over this that I don't know exactly the reason behind it. I don't want to psychoanalyze her, but when I would go over there, the television was always on, 24-7. It was never off. 
It was always on. It was loud. She slept with the TV on. She could not stand even a moment of quiet. There always had to be noise, some sort of distraction. She, now her kids, uh, for a variety of reasons, my uncles, um, they ended up to be uh, drug addicts, alcoholics, my own father included. And, and as she wrestled with all of that, being abandoned and what happened to her kids, she really wrestled with the things of God for years. She would occasionally go to church. She would, she would ask a question every once in a while of, of my mother. Now, I don't know if she ever put her faith in Jesus, but I do know that just having a moment of, of quiet reflection was too much for her. She couldn't deal with it. It's in that quietness that we experience an unsettledness that should lead us to want to answer life's ultimate questions. Who am I really? And why am I here? Is there a God? If there is a God, what's He like? And by what standard will He judge me? What's next after this life? Is there something else beyond this life? And all of those questions really come under and are tied to this question, who is Jesus? It's a question that has to be answered, and really answered rightly, given the statements that Jesus made. We can't just say, as the crowd said, he's a good man. His claims were too audacious for that. We can't just say, oh, he was a good teacher, he was a, he was a helpful person. We can't say that. We either have to conclude, I mean, this is a guy who claimed to be God. We either have to conclude that he is to be worshipped and we center our lives around him, or we run from him the way we would any other lunatic, any other person who claims to be God. Now look at verses 14 through 16. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This week-long festival the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles has kind of reached a middle point and Jesus then starts his teaching. And this crowd is amazed. They're blown away by this guy. They say, how is it that this guy could teach like this? We recognize by his dialect. We know who this guy is. Some people knew his family. This guy's never studied anywhere. He's never been under the great rabbis. He's never gone to any of the great uh, rabbinical schools. And so they say to him, they're marveled. They say among themselves, like, how does he teach like this? And Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Now this really confounded and bothered the crowd even more. Jesus' teaching was such authority and insight, and yet he's so modest about it. How can he say this? Now see, what was cherished, especially in the Greek world, the Hellenistic culture, but even also in the Jewish world, was originality. The mark of a true genius was originality. And I'm sad to say that it's something that we look at as well. And it's something we can really fall prey to. When I was in graduate school in Grand Rapids for three years, there was a guy who planted a church there. And he planted a church. And on the very first Sunday, there were 200 people, which is pretty amazing. The next Sunday, there were 400 people. And then 800 people. Eventually, they had to buy out. Or they were actually given a mall in Grand Rapids that nobody used. The church got to be 11,000 people in a very quick uh, period. Um, and I knew the guy. His name was Rob Bell, who planted the church. And I knew Rob, and he, he would come to the seminary that I was a part of on occasion. And he was, a, he was a terrific communicator, a brilliant communicator with creativity and so on. 
But what, really, what people really marvel about Rob, and they still do, is he would come up with something that no one else had ever thought of or said. He would come up with an angle, an interpretation of Scripture that through 2,000 years of history, nobody had ever, ever actually offered. And so wherever he would go, he had this huge following of people. Eventually, uh, his penchant for novelty got him to the place where he would say, ultimately, you know what? Love is going to conquer everything, and everybody's going to end up in heaven with Jesus. And so, you know, he would go right down the road of universalism to the point where his own church in Grand Rapids had to remove him, and uh, now he's in uh, Southern California, so, which I guess is where all the weird people are, right? You, uh, no, that, so that's, that's where I came from. That's kind of an inside joke if you're new. Um, but he's in Southern California. This is not about Rob Bell, but the point is, he had this original way of thinking that everybody thought, this is amazing. This guy is absolutely brilliant. But here's the thing. The mark of faithfulness is not, can we come up with something new? The mark of faithfulness is, we, can we humbly and accurately explain what someone else has already said? Namely, the almighty God of the universe. Jesus says, what I'm saying here is not original to me. It actually comes from God, my Father, who sent me. And then he says, look at verse 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, and this is an interesting phrase, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus says the one who wills to do the will of God, the one who wants to do the will of God, will know whether Jesus' teaching is from God or not. Now, we think about the will of God. Sometimes we, we often talk about it as something we need to find. I've got to find God's will for my life. I've got to find God's will in this situation. But that's not the way the Bible ever talks about God's will. It's not something we find. It's something we do. You know, when, we, when we talk about God's will, it's not like we're looking for a missing sock. It's actually something God's already revealed to us that we actually are commanded to do. Let me give you just a couple of examples. First, that's 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. You want to know what God's will is for you? It's to be grateful. First, that's a 4.3. It is God's will that you, will, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That's God's will for you. First Peter 2.15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Jesus says the one who wills, the one who wants to do the will of God, earnestly desires the will of God, will become persuaded that Jesus actually speaks for God. Here's our second point this morning. We just have two points and a question at the end. A simple way to determine if Jesus really speaks for God is to earnestly try to do the will of God that Jesus claims to represent. This is a simple way. You want to know if Jesus actually speaks for God? Try to do the will of God that Jesus claims to represent. Jesus says, if you really want to know if I speak for God, then sincerely do what I say and see what happens. And if you do that, if you try to do God's will, if you, if you earnestly make an effort to do God's will, you, two things will happen. The first thing that will happen is you will realize by experience that God's way is always better than our way. In other words, they say what? The, the proof of the pudding is in the taste. If you, if, you, if you try to do God's will, you will discover that Jesus' way is actually the most rewarding, the most fulfilling, not the easiest, for sure, the most responsible. If Jesus represents the will of God, then what Jesus says will lead to peace, contentment, joy. Let me just give you three uh, 
30 seconds example, examples here. Forgiving one another. Now, if you make an effort to forgive one another, if you're willing to release that hurt that's been done against you and extend forgiveness to the one who's hurt you, the one who's wronged you, you will find that that's much better than holding on to a grudge. Here's another one. Living in love toward your enemies, which is exactly what Jesus commanded us to do. Even though it seems to make no common sense at all, it is actually so much better than the alternative, living with hate. If you want to bring your life, if you want to abbreviate your life, you want to shorten the, the number of joyful days you have, live with hate in your life. And this is something that secular psychologists, pastoral counselors, Christians, wise sages, everyone agrees with. You want to ruin your life, fill your heart with hate. You want to do something that's actually going to give you much joy and peace? Live in love toward your enemy. Here's another one. Giving thanks, being grateful is so much better. It's, it's a much better way to live than being ungrateful or entitled. The person who is ungrateful lives in a constant deficit. Always wanting to have something else. Always wishing for that one thing that has eluded him or her. Those people are never happy with what they have. Because they think they deserve better. The grateful person, though, is happy because she realizes that she has something she doesn't deserve and she is then better able to delight in it. One pastor and author, Gavin Ortland, says, the simple habit of directing our focus toward intentional gratitude has the most incredible power to create joy. Are you an unhappy person? Let me just give you one, one way of application here from Jesus. Start practicing gratitude. Because no matter how bad off you are, you've got it pretty good. Really. Start practicing gratitude. If you belong to Christ, you've been forgiven. And that's a reason for gratitude. Let me give you one more. Jesus emphasizes the importance of sexual purity, even with our minds. Well, enjoying sex, specifically in the context of marriage, is so much better than the alternative. Sex outside of marriage. When sex is enjoyed in the context of marriage, there are no walks of shame. There are no endless guilt trips. There are no awkward conversations that you have to have. There, there, there is no constant fear of disease or haunting regrets. Jesus' way is better. Now, of course, God forgives all of those things. God forgives sexual promiscuity. He delights in doing it. God forgives an ungrateful heart. God forgives all of those things. But when God instructs us to live, it's not because He wants to stifle us. He does so so that we can actually thrive. His blueprint is infinitely better than our wisdom. So the person who earnestly tries to do God's will will realize that. There's another thing that he or she will realize. The second thing that will happen if you try to do God's will is you'll come to the realization that you cannot successfully do all the things that God has commanded. It's impossible. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, how did Jesus know that they, had, they hadn't kept the law entirely? Uh, was he watching them all the time? Did he uh, see them when they were sleeping and know when they were awake like Santa does? No, that's not the, that's how Jesus knew. Jesus knew because nobody keeps the law entirely. Nobody's able to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one honors Him and obeys Him in word, thought, and deed, and action. It's impossible. We've all failed to keep the law. So the second thing will happen 
if you try earnestly to keep the law, is you'll realize that God's will demands perfection, which no one can achieve. One old commentator says this, resolving to be obedient to God's will will lead a person to the conviction that one cannot do that will on one's own, that a person needs divine grace, and so will bring one not only to the originality of Jesus' teaching, so the person will be able to confirm, yeah, Jesus is actually teaching for God, but also to the reception of Jesus' saving work. When a person tries with sincerity to do God's will, the same will that Jesus communicates and embodies, he finds out, you know what? I can't do this. I need someone to do it for me. Despite the fact that the law, the commands of God are for our good, they always reveal our shortcomings, our failure to live perfectly before God. They accuse us of falling short. Someone say, well, how can the law be good and perfect and right and holy and at the same time actually accuse us? It always does. It's always both of those things. It's kind of like if a baseball pitching coach watches a beloved pitcher and he's watching that pitcher throw. And he goes to that pitcher in the middle of the game. He goes out to the, to the mound and he says, look, you've got to push down on your curveball. You've got to follow through on your strikes. You have to plant with your back foot, all of those things. Now, those things are actually meant for the good of, for the betterment of the pitcher. But what do they also do? They also expose the fact that he's not doing that. The reason he's missing his spots, the reason he's not throwing strikes, the reason he's getting shelled, getting hit all over the place, because he's not doing those things. So the law of God shows us the best way to live. It's for our good, for our benefit, for our joy, but it always accuses us because we never fully satisfy it. But Jesus satisfied the law for us. Remember, he said, I've come to do my Father's will. He perfectly obeyed God in every way. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, which is why he came, not for people who thought they were well, but for the sick people, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. And when we believe on him, that case against you, that case that contains all your sins and all your grievances and all your failures and all your rebellion, that case concerning your disobedience is closed forever. And it can't be reopened. It can never be reopened. It would be unjust for God to punish us for sins that Jesus covered on the cross. His punishment secures our peace, which is why if you are in Christ this morning, the law doesn't condemn you anymore. The law doesn't hang over your head anymore. Your past sins, your present sins, your very current failures will never be held against you. You are totally free. Jesus lived and died so that those who failed, which is all of us, could be forgiven. In fact, so forgiven, so forgiven, that our sins are separated from God and He no longer even knows them. He doesn't even know them. Now let's look at the last section here very quickly. Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? 
Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, we don't really have time to, to get into this uh, very deeply. Let me just say this. There were, in the first century, two conflicting laws, so to speak. There were these laws that seemed to be uh, diametrically opposed. There was one law that said, of course, part of the Decalogue, the ten words, honor the Sabbath, which meant you didn't work on the Sabbath. There was another law, which was the law of Moses, and the law of Moses, it was called the uh, circumcision on the eighth day law, and that law said that a, a, all Jewish boys must be circumcised on the eighth day. But here's where the, the problem comes in. What would happen if a boy was born on the Sabbath? Because in Jewish timekeeping, the, the day of birth was day one. And so that meant, according to Moses' law, he had to be circumcised on the following Sabbath, which was considered work. One of these two commands had to give way to the other. And what did those in the Jewish community do? Well, they would circumcise the boy, oftentimes, and set aside the law to honor the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, how is it that in order to keep the command of Moses to circumcise a child on the eighth day, you set aside the Sabbath command, but when I heal a person on the Sabbath, you're actually angry at me. He's talking about the time where he healed the guy who was paralyzed on a mat. And Jesus healed him. The religious leaders went crazy about this demanding that he give a defense. And Jesus points out their complete hypocrisy. He says, in essence, forgive me, you're so worried about a man's appendage that when I healed a man's whole body, you don't celebrate it. Then he says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All he's saying is, look, you're looking at me. You're looking at me. You're judging me on a surface level. You've refused to actually consider my true identity. You've refused to actually humbly consider what I'm saying to you and who I am. So this is our final point this morning, which is really not a point but a question. The all-important question that Jesus asks is, how have you been judging Jesus? And it's a question that I believe John the Evangelist, when he writes this, he wants us all to consider. Is Jesus, how are you judging Jesus? Is he a good man? The way the crowd thought. A guy you can learn from a little bit, you know, you take some of his stuff, some of it's really good, some of it, you know, you're not so persuaded by. Is he a person that when he died on the cross, he accomplished most of it? Satisfy most of God's wrath, but the rest of it you believe is on you? Is he a person, is Jesus that is a person you kind of bring into your life when you need him? When things are really rough, when you're having a, a day or a week like I started out talking about? Or do you believe that he spoke as one? He spoke the words of God because he was God in the flesh. He was there at creation, John says in one. He was the one who, who threw out the stars when God said, let there be light. He's the one, he's been there all along. How do we judge Jesus? Is he a good teacher? Is he an inspirational motivator? Or is he the one in whom we placed our faith, recognizing apart from him, we have no hope for all eternity. Let's pray.